thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What's new in the land of science for you? Well, I'm touched to discover that wired into the brains of all of us is a desire for equality, or at least to make sure everyone has as good a chance of doing well for themselves as they could do. This is a paper in Nature. It's by John O'Doherty, who's a researcher at Caltech. He's also based in Ireland, but he's working over in California. And what this paper sets out is a really quite neat experiment, which shows that if you take random people and you put them in a brain scanner and you ask them to play a game with someone. And in this game, one person starts off with a reasonable amount of money, one person starts off broke, and you see money being given to each other. And what they find is that if you start off both with nothing and you see the other person get some money, it doesn't really do anything for your brain. But when you get some money, the reward part of your brain lights up. If you start rich, though, in other words, they give you a whole bunch of money before the experiment starts, and then you get some money, your brain lights up, great, you made a bit of money. But it lights up even more when the other person who's more broke than you are also gets some money. I'm not sure at which stage the transition occurs, whereby when the other person becomes richer than you, uh, whether they actually switch this behaviour... But what this shows is that our brain is actually striving for us all to want to have a fairer chance. Or as the researchers put it, maybe the person who's richer to start with just feels guilty because they've got more than the other person. And when they see the other person get something, then that makes them feel a bit less guilty, and that's why. But it's interesting to think that, that there is this primitive circuit in the brain, and it probably underlies the fact that we're a social species and that we are very successful when we get together and work together rather than in isolation. And this kind of uh, reward incentivizes behaviour probably underpins that. Well, as long as the big green-eyed monster doesn't get there, that's the main thing, isn't it? We need to Indeed. obliterate that one. <laughs> all right, well, let's start with some questions, and there's been quite a few on the email this week. First of all, from Susie, who is in the USA, in Idaho, actually, and she says, uh, hello, Chris and all, hello, Susie. She said, you've got the best podcast. I have a question. If Jupiter is made up of gas, why is it so round, and what keeps the gases from just floating away? Well, from a distance, most of the big planets, most of the objects we see are spherical. And the reason for that is it's the most effective surface area to volume ratio. In other words, the thing that's pulling all this stuff together when a planet forms, it forms from a big disk of material which was spinning around what would have become the sun. That's called a protoplanetary disk. Gravity would have pulled material together, and as it pulled material together, the way in which the particles can get the closest they can to every other particle is by forming a round shape. So the answer is planets and planetoids 
asteroids to a certain extent, things try and get into round shapes because that gets the particles as close together as possible under the influence of gravity, which is what's driving the process. Now, in the case of Jupiter, Jupiter is a gas giant. It's effectively a, almost a brown dwarf, a failed star, if you like. It's so big, it's almost big enough to squeeze itself hard enough to start fusion, the process that powers the sun, but it's not quite big enough. It's still pretty heavy, though. In fact, I looked up the weight of Jupiter. Its uh, mass is 2 times 10 to the 27 kilograms. So that's 2 followed by 27 zeros afterwards. So a very massive planet, huge amount of gravity pulling in, and that's what hangs on to what's in Jupiter, which is largely hydrogen. It's about 80 or 90% hydrogen, a little bit of helium, and then some other trace things as well. So that huge amount of mass exerts a big gravitational force, which pulls all of that matter as close as it can together and keeps it in a round shape. And in fact, I thought we could actually ask people, it might be quite nice, what do you think you would weigh on Jupiter? I'll tell you for free, Jupiter is about 320 times heavier than Earth is. So what do you think, everyone out there, what would your weight be on Jupiter compared with Earth? Hmm. I don't think I should have had that Mars bar, that's all I can say. <laughs> we oh. won't ask you to reveal your weight. But, uh, <laughs> But you can speculate what you think you might weigh on Jupiter, and then no one will know. All right, it's fantastic. Dr Chris, answering your science questions. So let's go straight to one. And it's uh, Leanne in Gillingham. She says, how many layers of skin do we have? Interesting question. Well, the answer is that skin isn't the same all over the body surface. So if you look in different places, you will see the skin looking a bit different. Now, it's largely the same configuration, but it will vary in thickness because skin reacts to how much sheer stress or force it's feeling on whatever bit of the body or how, how much, basically, you're using that bit of the body, and you develop thicker skin to compensate. So if you look at, say, the soles of your feet where you're walking around on rough surfaces all the time, mm -hmm. the skin there responds to the fact that it's being traumatised a little bit by walking on rough surfaces and the cells grow more and they produce more skin. So the skin on the bottom of your feet will be much thicker than, say, the skin on an eyelid where there's no trauma or very little trauma. So if you measure the thickness of skin on your eyelid, it's about mm, half a millimetre to a millimetre thick. But if you look on the base of your feet, you'll find the skin may be on average five millimetres thick, so very, very thick. If, you, if you're a manual worker and you use your hands to do brickwork or carpentry or something, then the skin can respond to become very thick, more than five millimetres. What is making it thicker? Well, the answer to that is when the cells in the skin divide, because there's a basal layer of live, living stem cells that are growing very fast, those stem cells go from deep in the skin and they migrate towards the surface and they dry out and flatten and they form what are called stratified, squamous, keratinized cells. So these are dried-out dead cells that stack up like thin layers of bricks, and they are completely flattened and dried out and dead, but the more of them you have, the thicker the skin appears to be. And that's basically what determines skin thickness. So the more work you do with the skin, the faster the cells underneath divide to produce more of these overlying cells, which then flatten out, dry out, and they become the skin thickness. Interesting stuff. All right, well, let's um, ask about this one then. Chili is an interesting thing. Dom's just had a very spicy pizza, and he says, why does milk help to soothe chili in the mouth, but water doesn't? Chris? 
I love chilli. Me too. Uh, in, fact, in fact, there is, believe it or not, an official scale for ranking how hot chilies are. It's called the Scoville scale. And the more Scoville units a chilli has, the spicier it is. And the hottest chilies are the Scotch bonnet chilies, and they're millions of Scoville units. You can't really eat a whole one of those unless you're really, really impressive. <laughs> I can't eat one of those, but I can certainly manage a pretty hot curry. Uh, I think it's addictive actually. Mm. But the thing that's making chilli spicy is that the plant puts into the chilli's flesh a chemical called capsaicin. And capsaicin is a small molecule which is very fatty. It likes to dissolve in oil. And when you put it into your mouth, it goes into the membranes of the nerve cells that supply the mouth cavity and your throat. And those nerve cells, one particular class of them called C-fibres, feel pain, they have on their surface a receptor, a chemical docking station that recognises chilli. And when the capsaicin, the chilli, locks onto that receptor, it activates the nerve fibre and it fires off nerve impulses. Those same nerve fibres are the same ones that sense heat and that's why chilli triggers a heat sensation in your mouth because you're fooling the mouth into thinking that it's actually very, very hot when in reality it's just a body temperature because you're sensitising the nerve fibres to the heat that's already there. Now, the reason that milk makes it better but water doesn't is because this molecule, being a fatty molecule, likes to dissolve in the fat in milk because if you look at what milk is, milk is an emulsion and there are proteins in there and there are globules of fat in milk. And when you put a fatty substance like milk into the mouth the chilli substance, the capsaicin, some of it dissolves in the fat in the milk and then gets trapped and then you swallow it, taking the chilli out of your mouth. But with water, because oil and water won't mix, it doesn't pluck the molecule out of the receptor very well and so it stays preferring to be stuck into the oily membrane of the nerve fibre rather than come into the water. So the water adds a cooling effect, so it gives you a little bit of relief, but then the burning comes back as soon as the water is gone from your mouth and the temperature rises again. Mm, a whole chemical reaction just by eating something like that is fascinating. All right, let's go to the phones right now because here's Mark in Dunstable. Hello, Mark. You're Hello, through to Sue. Dr. Chris. I wanted to ask you what you think about brain size in creatures. As humans, they say we only use 30% of our brains. I just wonder what you thought about it. Thank you, Mark. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> let's first of all deal with the, the question about how much of our brain do we use at any one time? Mm. Because there is this claim, 10 or 30% of your brain, whatever. That's not true, unfortunately. Mm. You just have to look at someone who has suffered a brain injury and realise that even if they've only lost a small part of their brain, yeah. they're definitely not able to do everything that a normal person can and they don't necessarily look normal all the time. So it's a myth that you only use 10% of your brain okay, yeah. at any one time. You need all of your brain. Your brain is so energy costly to your body. In fact, it accounts for about 20 to 25% of all of the energy your body is burning up in any moment in time is down to your brain. So your brain is very, very energy dependent and your, your evolution would not let your body keep such a big brain because it was too costly if it was only using 10% of it at any one time. The, what actually happens is that when you need your brain to do something, that bit of brain that's specialised for that task becomes a bit more active when it's doing that particular job. So it boosts up its metabolic activity and that's what brain scanners can see. But it's not that everything else turns off. You need your entire brain all the time. It's just that when you focus your attention on one particular thing, you augment the activity and the bits of the brain that do that particular task. In terms of how brain size varies in animals, that's interesting too, because some animals have 
a very small brain relative to, say, a human brain, but they're still nonetheless very clever. Mm. And there's one species in particular, uh, the crow family, yeah. which are studied by a researcher at Cambridge University, Nikki Clayton. She studies scrub jays. And these birds she refers to and her colleagues refer to them as feathered Einsteins because mm. they seem to have incredible abilities to reason, to perceive problems and develop solutions to those problems despite only having a bird-sized brain, yeah. not much bigger than your thumb, actually. Mm. For instance, if you give these birds, and this was published in, in the journal Current Biology in the last um, six months or so, uh, if you give these birds a pot with a nut in it floating on some water and they can't get into the pot because the neck of the pot is too narrow so they can't reach far enough down to where the nut is floating if you give them a pile of stones then they work out that if they pick up stones and drop them into the water then the level will increase and they get the nut and birds can do this these particular um, they, they tested rooks in this instance they can do this without any previous education or training it's not that they've seen other birds do it and the, the researchers also gave them other things that wouldn't work like feathers um, they put the nut on feathers and gave them some stones and the birds pretty quickly worked out that the same effect, the level raising effect with the feathers doesn't work and, and so the birds could very quickly solve those kind of problems. There have been other examples of the birds planning for the future. So what Nikki Clayton did in, in an experiment about three or four years ago was she put these birds in an environment where um, they were always going to be fed and then she put them away at night in another environment where they weren't fed but where they knew they were going to have to spend the night. And what she, what she was able to show is that they quite quickly realised that they were going to go hungry in the place where they spent the night but if they hid some food in there then they would have something to eat later. So they started to put food from the room where they were fed into the room where they were going to spend the night later, hidden, so that they would have something to dig up and eat later. And this shows that these animals are learning from past experience and using it to inform future behaviour. And that, we think, is a, a very, very high-level intelligence. So brain size doesn't necessarily control overall intelligence, but it does contribute. And the bigger your body is, too, the bigger the brain you need, basically, to control it. But it doesn't necessarily make you hugely intelligent, because dogs have a reasonably big brain, quite intelligent but then an elephant has a huge brain but it's not 10 times more intelligent than a human so size isn't everything basically which is reassuring in some respects <laughs> that's lovely that's Mark all I right, your, thank you. Love your program, it's marvellous. Oh, thank you for listening, Mark. Right, now then, let's go to uh, John's question on the text of Is Water Indestructible, Chris? The answer is definitely not. And the evidence for that is that if you take some electricity and you pass it through water, you get some bubbles on your electrode. So if you have a battery and you put the two ends of the wire uh, from one side of the battery in one wire, other side of the battery, other wire, dip those two ends of the wire in some water, you'll see bubbles coming off, and those bubbles are bubbles of hydrogen, which are forming at the cathode, where there are lots of electrons that you can push onto the hydrogen atoms to reduce them from H plus into hydrogen, and at the anode, the positive, you get oxygen, and that's because the oxygen, which is a bit minus, donates some excess electrons and is oxidised to make oxygen gas molecules. So water isn't indestructible. The bond that holds the hydrogen and the oxygen together has a certain energy associated with it, and if you put enough energy in, using, say, electricity to do that, then you can break that bond and you can turn water back into its component parts. That's called electrolysis, and it's happening all the time. So water isn't, isn't indestructible. Water's just very stable. So if you start with two chemicals and they are unstable, 
not necessarily they're going to break down straight away, but if you get them in the right condition, they can react together. Then what they'll do is react in such a way that they give away some energy if they can, and then form a product which is more stable than the two things were beforehand. And you have to put the energy that they gave out to make that compound back in to break it apart again. So water certainly isn't indestructible.、Um, it certainly can be broken down and made to decompose. And it's much harder to break apart nitrogen molecules, N2 molecules, or even carbon dioxide actually than it is to break apart water. Right. We've got Rob on the line. Hello, Rob from Northampton. Hello. Hello there. What's your question? My question is:、uh, How is a flushed face triggered from an emotional reaction? Hello, Rob. Hello.、Uh, so, in other words, when you feel particularly strongly about something, why do we go red in the face? Yes. Yeah. Well, well the the blushing phenomenon is a vascular one. That redness is blood being diverted through tissues close to the surface of the skin. The、mm. idea being that then the closeness of the red blood to the surface of the skin makes the face look ruddier, redder. We think this occurs because it's a very visual signal. Humans devote more than a third of their brain just to decoding vision, and because it's such a costly sense, most of the signals we send to each other involve some kind of visual element to them. And red is a good colour because we're very sensitive to it, and also it tends to be associated with anger. So it tends to to be used to make other people think, "Wow, that person's really upset about something.、Uh, I better be careful."、Um, and interestingly, this transfers in sport too, because scientists studying the last Olympics noticed that when they compared the people who were playing in the Greco-Roman wrestling event, if they looked at the chances of someone winning if they played in blue, they were much lower, statistically speaking, than if the other opponent played in red. So、okay. playing in red definitely gave that person an advantage over and above what you'd expect by chance, and the same seems to be true in football. Teams who play in red seem to win more often than teams that play in blue, and this suggests that、uh, there is an innate terror for this redness in the human body. So, in other words, it's a rush of blood to the superficial tissues of the face. It's a neurological effect. So the brain says, "I feel embarrassed" or "I feel very annoyed about this," and it undoes blood vessels by relaxing blood vessels close to the surface of the skin by reducing the input of what's called the sympathetic drive into those vessels. So they open up, and that means the blood flow gets boosted through them. Fantastic! Great answer. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Thanks very much indeed. Yeah, great question. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, very good. I'm not quite sure if I ever blush or not. <laughs> oh, you must do. Well, yes, I suppose.、So. <laughs> Are you just saying you you're just far too bashful ever to? <laughs> <laughs> I never get embarrassed about anything.、Uh, or are you saying that you just never say anything blushworthy?、Um, from, oh, I never say anything blushworthy. <laughs> oh no, not me. <laughs> If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out the Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week, we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to. Trip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com/podcast. Dr. Chris is here to answer your questions. Let's go to the phones once again. Here's Peter in Basildon. Hello, Peter. Hello there. Back in the days of VCR, there was a video plus system which you could encode、uh, programs by numbers. And not being a mathematical genius, I could never work out the relationship between the numbers and the program information. I wonder if you can shed some light on it. 
I do know of that system, but A, I was far too much of a Luddite at the time to use it because I just had a cheap and nasty video that didn't understand those numbers. Um, and B, um, I just used to come in, turn the video on, record something and turn it off. I was never organised enough. I'm so hopelessly disorganised. I never managed to make a system like that work. Um, so I don't, I don't actually have any experience of using it. I think, um, I, I'm not sure, but I think that what you can do is you, you take a combination of dates and times and you can put them into a certain algorithm, a mathematical equation, some kind of simple coding, which turns the, all the, the date and time information and duration information into a simple string of numbers. And because all videos share the same code, when you put that universal number in, that it goes into the universal code, which turns it back into uh, a, a, the, the correct format of date and time and things. I don't know what the, the code is, though, what, you know, how the program actually converts it to that string of numbers. The reason they did that, though, is because otherwise they would have to make sure everybody was publishing the information at just the right format for the, 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 the month, the day, day, month, month, year, year, time, time format and so on. Whereas if you just give a string of numbers, no one can get that wrong. So it was a way of making it simpler. Oh, brilliant. Okay, I've got, I've got kind of the idea what you mean. Uh, it just puzzled me that one program could have a three-digit code or a four-digit code and the following program would be a seven- or an eight-digit code. Yeah, I'd, I'll have to have a look because it's a very good question. I'll have to have a look at the actual algorithm they use to encode that. Or if anyone knows, do do tell us because I don't know of what the actual mathematical system they use to turn date information into those time codes. But if someone does know, please tell us. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much. Peter, thank you very much. Good night. Thank you. I think it's one of those things, isn't it? The, the first sort of, uh, it's like computers. The first one you get, it's like you, you master it and you think, that's great. And then it changes and you have to absorb more and more technology. I'm, I'm not that good at that. Anyway, uh, let's go to our emails now because uh, there are plenty of those coming through as well. And this one is from Sarah Williams, who says, um, just to say, lovely show, it's brilliant. I listen every week and the podcasts are great for long journeys. Um, for example, when I'm on my way to school. Now she says, uh, why are black surfaces better? at absorbing light Chris now that's a really really good question and the reason for this and the reason why black surfaces absorb light is because the configuration of the molecules or atoms on the surface of that substance is such that when a photon a particle of light a wave of light however you want to view light comes in it hits the surface and it then gets captured by the surface because what can happen with light when it hits the surface is one of two things. One, it can be absorbed into the atoms in that surface, or it can be reflected back off. In other words, it bounces off the surface. So when a surface is very, very dark black, what that means is that the energy packed by the light wave is being, to the greatest extent possible, absorbed into the surface of that substance. So if a surface is really, really black, what that means is that it's taking in all of the light energy and it's regenerating or reflecting off as the least amount possible. And what scientists call black is continuously changing because in the last few years, a scientist over in America called Pulikel Aljayan uh, came up with the blackest substance yet known to man. And this is an incredible stuff. It, seen down a microscope, it looks like a forest of bamboo if you look at this uh, this surface from the side. And that's because he's used carbon nanotubes. So you take a surface, if you deposit these tiny molecular straws made of carbon atoms on the surface, so you get this bamboo forest, when light waves come in, they hit the surface, and even if they bounce around, uh, they, they still end up hitting one of these 
nanotubes are getting soaked up and absorbed. And that means that very little light actually gets reflected back off or regenerated. And for that reason, the surface looks really, really dark. Where does the light go? Well, the energy that was the light wave is now in the molecules of that particular surface. And that means it effectively becomes heat. So surfaces heat up. So that's why when you want to absorb heat from a light source, if you have a surface that's black, you get as much energy from light going into that surface and turning into heat, and that heats up the surface and then heats up the thing inside. So that's why solar panels are black, for example. All right, here's um, Freddie on the line. Hello, Freddie. Hello, how are you, right? Yeah, very good. What's your question for Dr Chris? I want to know why when we shout or cough, we deafen other people if they're in the vicinity, but we don't deafen ourselves. Good one, Chris. Good good question, Freddie. Um, Something I do quite a bit now. I've got two kids. (laughs) Uh, But not deafen myself. So if you look in your ears, what's actually happening is that you've got sound waves, which are compression waves coming in in air molecules, hitting your eardrum, which is a membrane which separates the ear canal, the bit you can put your finger in, from your inner ear, which is where you have this special thing, the cochlea, which converts sound waves into brain waves. And the eardrum goes in and out a bit, and this converts that motion using three tiny bones, the hammer, the anvil, and the the stapes. Those three bones transmit the vibrations into the cochlea. Now, that works like a mechanical lever system, a bit like a nutcracker, and so you can convert very small movements of the eardrum into much bigger movements of this stapes bone against your cochlea. And one way that the body controls how loud you experience sounds is by changing how well those levers move. So there's some tiny muscles in your middle ear. One of them is called stapedius because it's anchored onto the stapes, that uh, bone that goes onto your cochlea. And there's also another muscle which tightens up or slackens the eardrum, tensor tympani. And the brain knows when you're about to start making noises yourself And there's a sort of feedback which goes into your ear and changes how tight those muscles are, how much force they're putting into the bones and onto the eardrum. And this changes how well those things move in response to sound waves coming in into your ear canal. So in other words, you turn down the sensitivity of your own hearing to compensate for the effect that you're about to make a lot of noise. So you have anticipatory noise suppression, if you like. Clever stuff, eh, Freddie? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that is yeah. No, that's that's answered it for me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I realise now how we do turn it down. We would deafen ourselves, but like I said, it's puzzled me for years, and I've never had anybody to ask before. Ah, oh, you got it right here now. <laughs> Thank you, Freddie, very much indeed. Thank you. you. Bye bye. There's another question here um, that's come through, and that's about gravity, Chris. Um, how is gravity formed, and what is it made up of? This is from Billy, and he says, not how it works, it's, it's how is it formed, and he's really enjoying the show as well. Thank you, Billy. Chris. Hello, Billy. Um, if I could answer that, then I think I would probably have saved a lot of people an enormous amount of money. They wouldn't have had to have built the Large Hadron Collider, probably, because one of the big questions that people want to answer with the Large Hadron Collider is where does mass come from? And mass is the property which seems to give rise to gravity. In other words, the heavier something is, the more gravity it has. And Einstein explained this in terms of if you imagine the universe as this fabric, let's call it space-time, but imagine a tablecloth stretched out with someone holding each corner. If you drop weights onto that tablecloth, then the tablecloth will deform under the weight of the objects you drop onto it, and it makes a little dip. And 
Einstein's view was that what massive things are doing, because they they are very massive, they have a lot of material, they weigh a lot. Although I shouldn't use the word weight, but if they're very massive, they distort space-time. This creates a little well, and this means that other things that weigh less run down the hill towards the thing that's very big and massive. So we think that gravity works by distorting space-time, and that is a, a consequence of something being very massive. But exactly how that's propagated, people talk about a notional particle called the graviton. But I don't understand how gravitons work, and I'm, I, I think scientists are still trying to detect them at the moment. So at the moment, it's very much an unknown entity.、Um, we think that gravity propagates at the speed of light, but that's about as far as it goes. Excellent stuff. That's more than I know, anyway, Chris. <laughs> All right, let's go to、uh, Mike, who's on the telephone. Hello, Mike. Good evening. Hello there. You're through to Dr. Chris. If every squirrel remembered exactly where that buried every single nut. Then、uh, things like acorns would never be able to propagate new、uh, trees, because that's how they, the way they spread their nuts by、uh, squirrels and、uh, magpies burying nuts and then forgetting where they are. Absolutely right, Mike. That's spot on.、Um, the squirrels forget, but also the squirrels die、uh, before they have a chance to come back and retrieve their cache of nuts. And so many of those nuts turn into trees. And the number of blinking walnut trees I've now got in my garden, where they shouldn't be, is testimony to that. That I keep catching them. They put these walnuts. I don't know where they keep getting them from, but they keep burying them in all my plant pots, in my lawn. And I'll be mowing the grass, and suddenly the mower will stop dead because I've hit a tree. <laughs> so there's a blinking tree growing. In the lawn, out of nowhere, and it's、yeah. the squirrels planting them. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, we got time for one more question here. That's really、uh, made me smile, anyway. And it comes from Philip Young, and he says, "Why do we find the posterior attractive? <laughs> right up your street. There's always one, isn't there? So thank you, Mike, for that. And I'm glad that you enjoy the show. <laughs> But yes, it, why are bums nice to look at? <laughs> we, we all like looking at bums, don't we? Um, they, they are very attractive, and some people say that they're definitely a bum person. They they really like looking at a nice bum, and they use it as a gauge to whether they fancy someone or not to a certain extent. I mean, amongst other things, obviously. But why should we like the bum? Well, why should we like anything? I mean, there are other bits of people's bodies that people also admire and find attractive. But why should we? Why should we find certain body bits attractive? Well, the answer is it's almost certainly going to be something evolutionary, isn't it? It's going to be something which. We f- we find certain body bits attractive because they will help us to be successful and reproduce and pass our genes into the next generation. That's the simple answer. So why should a bum do that? Well, the likelihood is that if you've got a nice big bum, certainly if it's a man looking at a woman's body, a woman with a nice big bum tells you a number of things. One, it tells you she's well fed, and a woman who's well fed because women store. Excess fat around their bum and hips, because this is an energy reserve for breastfeeding and pregnancy. So a woman who's well nourished means that she's got lots of energy on board, and this means she's going to have a healthy baby. So it's a good sort of covert signal to a man: this is reproductive success in front of your very eyes. <laughs> Now the other thing. The other thing it could do,、um, apart from just saying, "Is this person going to have lots of energy?" is has this person got a nice big pelvis, so that they're going to have a baby easily? Because one of the biggest problems with being pregnant is you've got to get this blinking baby, which is sort of a rugby ball-sized thing, has got to come out through quite a small aperture, and the pelvis is a big determinant of that. So we also use a woman's shape as a guide. Subconsciously, 
as to whether or not she's likely to have babies easily or not. And, and as a result, um, the bum is therefore very informative. And certain populations, a friend of mine who is from one of the African tribes, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he said, well, you know, we set great store by a well-fed, you know, really buxom woman. And if you look at, uh, historically, bush people, the bushmen of Africa, the women had very big bums because they would store enormous amounts of energy there. And, and that was a genetic thing. But if you, if you went for someone who had a big bum, it meant they were well-fed. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 